2: You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, and this show is all about your longest and most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone, regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. I'm here today with Alain de Botton, the best-selling author and founder of global organisation The School of Life.
3: In order to be a productive and kind member of society, one one has to spend quite a lot of time nurturing oneself. Otherwise, you know, we're on a road to exhaustion and bitterness.
2: Alain distinguished himself academically from early on achieving a double first from Cambridge, a master's in philosophy from King's College London, and beginning studies for a PhD at Harvard, before packing it all in to write a romance novel. That novel was Essays in Love, which sold 2 million copies. Alan was just 23. He has a global following, and he counts singer Harry Styles among his fans. Anyone who's read his works, visited the School of Life or even just followed him on social media will know his rare gift for making the typically dry academic subjects of art, architecture and philosophy, applicable to the everyday. He also writes about dating and relationships in the modern age. So naturally, I'm going to kick off our conversation with a question about Bridget Jones. Alan, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Last time I saw you, you were doing a talk with Helen Fielding, who wrote the Bridget Jones novels. And during that evening, I learned that you had a cameo in the first Bridget Jones film.
3: That's right. Very weirdly, in 1990s London, Bridget Jones was, you know, a bestselling column. And through Friends of Friends, I was in touch with Helen Fielding, the author. And when they came to film Bridget Jones, the film, I was invited to attend a literary party that is filmed, uh, that is part of the, uh, the movie. And there were various authors like Julian Barnes and Salman Rushdie and Little Old Me. And I was very, honoured to be part of this august group, and spent a couple of days filming this party. And it was full Hollywood thing. And, uh, you know, Hugh Grant was there and Renee Zellweger. And it was great fun. And I had a few lines with Renee Zellweger that had been scripted for me. And I thought this was really going to be my big Hollywood break. And I remember leaving the set and Julian Barnes said, I'll bet you something very hefty that this ends up on the cutting room floor and that you'll never see it. And I thought he was being terribly cynical. In fact, he was being very wise and the thing has now been lost. But if you look very, very carefully at the party scene in Bridget Jones, you will see me bobbing up for a very, very short uh, moment. So I am actually in the movie, but I don't say anything.
2: Okay, so anyone re-watching the first Bridget Jones film will have to look out for this. The thing about Bridget though is she became such a relatable figure when the books came out in the 90s and a lot of that is still relevant nowadays, the interfering family and the smug married friends. As someone who writes about relationships and their place in modern society, do you think that the world is now a kinder place to single people and specifically single women in their 30s and beyond like Bridget? Look, I
3: think it all depends what you want out of life. So if you see that the point of life and the point of being fulfilled is to be married and with children in a kind of very standard um, relationship um, at a certain point, then your 30s remains challenging uh, if, you're, if you happen to be female and single. And the simple reason is biology. That it, it just so happens that if you know having a child is important to you, then that's probably going to have to happen in your 30s or early 40s. you know there will be a biological cutoff point and um, that's not society's fault it's just the way that we're built. I think it's important to stress that that's not the only way in which somebody could gain fulfillment and um, and, and, and be a happy person. but if you subscribe to that narrative, then being in your 30s female single might be challenging. But I think one of the perhaps optimistic things is that we are very slowly, but but I think forcefully, realising that there have to be many more images of fulfilment than the standard romantic, heterosexual, monogamous, 2.2 children union. Even though that's very satisfying for many, many people, lots of people, for all sorts of reasons, are not going to subscribe to that model. And I think that a happy society is one which allows a great deal of diversity in um, how people are allowed to live with with dignity and um, with the respect of their peers, and that a legitimate choice can be made in many, many directions, not simply, you know, the one item on the menu.
2: Would you say that takes a certain amount of self-examination to see where you fit with what you perceive society's expectations to be?
3: Well, I think, you know, the the, the normal impulse is um, always to start with try, trying to fit in with what other people want of you. And society is not neutral in this regard. There are all sorts of stories that we're constantly told about how we might behave in order to be um, a respectable and, in inverted commas, normal member of society. And these stories begin very, very uh, young. And, you know, they are changing but there are still powerful stories about what it's like to be a little boy or a little girl um what it's like to be a uh, an adolescent uh, what it's like to be you know a university student these stories pursue us um and it takes a great deal of uh, inner freedom to be able to ask yourself the question you know, is this actually me it now it may be you know it may be that you you're fitting a dominant social story of what you're meant to be, but it may also not be. Now, we've got one very dominant model of this happening in our society, and that is around sexuality. So we all know the story, because of you know pioneering work of all sorts of people for, for decades and decades, the story of somebody who gradually discovers that their sexuality is different from the expected sexuality, that even though you know, their peers and their parents and wider society may think of them in one way, you know, that they should settle down with a nice boy or a nice girl. Actually, no, no, they want somebody of their own gender. So that story has been, through a great deal of sort of heroic re-narration, has been been told to us in a fresh way that you could actually wake up and realise that you're gay. And that this is something that is is a precious piece of self knowledge that you can then take out into the world and and run your life in a different way but if i can say there's actually many many more models of this and it doesn't only apply around sexuality it it applies to almost anything you you dare to think of i mean it could be around um what you have for breakfast or around what clothes you wear or how you sleep i mean imagine if somebody realizes through self interrogation that they are not actually a typical sleeper, and imagine if after a few nights with a new partner, they say, "Look, I'm terribly sorry, but I can't really share a bed with you. I don't really, I'm not really comfortable doing this. Um, I I wake up at three in the morning, and then I'm awake between three and five when some of my best ideas come to you, come come to me, and I'd like to be on my own. And um, please don't take this the wrong way. Now that takes quite a lot of courage. It, it's akin to it, so it's a sort of mini coming out in the realm of." sleeping. Um, but somebody might also say that you know they don't like drinking alcohol. And so even though all their friends are drinking alcohol, they realise that they love sparkling water. And that's what they want to be in their peer group. So so there are constantly moments when we might discover in large areas and small areas, in comedic areas and in pretty serious areas, that we don't fit the model of um, being normal that, that is sold to us. And um, I think that a a mature life and a well-developed life and a courageous life is one in which, in as many areas as possible, we have a good sense of who we are and are able to take that out into the world and tell people about who we are in ways that are not going to scare them and appall them, but um, hopefully interest them and um, lead them in turn to discover their own Departures from the so-called normal, because this stuff is catching. You know, if somebody has the bravery to say, actually, I, I don't drink, or I, um, I like to sleep in a different way, or I, I fancy a different sort of person, or whatever it may be, then other people will discover that courage in themselves.
2: I really like that notion of a mini coming out. I think that has so much to do with alonement, where we're expected to do so many things with other people, like dining out at a restaurant or going on holiday, even being in a relationship for some people that just isn't suitable for them. How do we get to that point, though, of self-knowledge where we can have that mini coming out? Because a lot of us just aren't that honest with ourselves.
3: The challenge really goes down to the architecture of our minds. Our minds don't give us data very clearly about what we're actually experiencing. Our minds evolved over millions of years to do all sorts of things. But one of the things that they're not particularly good at doing is keeping us in touch with our actual emotions um, and, and thereby helping us to understand ourselves with the accuracy that we need to navigate know key aspects of the modern world. So what I mean by that is, it's possible, for example, not to notice that you are an introvert, that that actually you could go through life and you might have missed a whole host of cues that suggest to you that actually you are an introverted person. Um, And that's partly because we often look to what other people are saying about us to understand ourselves. So we don't use our own registry of emotions and and sensations as the first port of call we'll we'll sort of we'll see what other people are saying and they'll go okay right so you know i'm i roughly subscribe to what other people are telling me and other people may not have noticed something so then we we end up with quite a distorted uh, sense of ourselves that we we're not fitting in um with the data that's actually inside us and and so there's can be a kind of dissonance between what other people are telling us we are and what we actually are and to try and bring the two into line, as it were, the, the public perception and the private reality, we may have to undergo some rather artificial exercises like sitting around and thinking about it and actually reviewing the evidence. So, you know, on the basis of the evidence, um, am I happy in my relationship? You know, other people are going, Well, you look so terrific with your partner, you must be having a great time. But actually, is that true? Let's just actually analyze it. And, and that may uh, mean that you might have to review material. Um, similarly, you know, am I enjoying my job? Well, um, you know, my mum thinks I am. Um, and she might be quite invested in thinking that, but, but, but am I? Um, so we might need to, to do a very odd thing, which is to ask ourselves a question as if we are a stranger to ourselves, along the lines of, well, what do you want? Uh, are you happy in this relationship, etc.? And that sounds quite odd to use the word you in relation to yourself. I mean, but but nevertheless, it, it does actually make sense when when you think that, you know, the mind is split into what you could call a kind of stream of consciousness, which is picking up data all the time, which is experiencing certain things, and then a reviewing, sort of uh, summarising and analytical intelligence, which which is not really plugged in at all times. It needs to be slightly artificially plugged in and then take stock of what's been going on. So so as so it with a minute by minute flow of sensations doesn't necessarily give us answers to some of the key things that we might need to know. So we might need to step back and go, right, um, I've been doing some living uh, of late, you know, I've I've been alive this week. Um, how do I feel about my relationship now? What am I thinking about my career now? What is my view about my friends? Because even though you've been in the relationship, you've been in your friendships, um, you've been inside your, your work, um, you may not have... Uh, sort of sifted through the evidence and and come to those larger conclusions.
2: I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I mean, I definitely do. It's really inconvenient to acknowledge certain feelings. It's difficult to acknowledge, for instance, that you want to call time on a relationship or that you want to quit your job. For me, something that really helped is keeping a diary because that's allowed me to connect with my inner thoughts in a way that I don't really think I did before because I would run away from them. What would you recommend in terms of practical steps for gaining that self-knowledge? And do you have to be physically by yourself in order to do it? Or can someone else help?
3: Yes, I mean, it's very, very hard in the presence of most people to gain real insights into yourself. There are wonderful people who are trained to do this, and generally they go by the name of psychotherapists. Now, a good psychotherapist is somebody who, very uniquely among humans that we meet, is interested in helping you to understand yourself. And they do something that, in general conversation, people very rarely do, which is to step aside in order to let the true shape of you emerge. Most of the time, people use conversation as a platform in which to assert their own opinion. And though that can be very interesting, it may not be the best way of helping you to understand yourself. So, um, so I don't think we should put the split in terms of being alone versus being with somebody. I think we should say that there's a certain sort of person who helps a lot. But that person is what you might colloquially call a good listener. Uh, but it's not actually just listening it's it's listening with intent because a good listener we might expect is just somebody who steps back and lets you speak it's not it's more creative than that good listening also involves helping you to find your way back to maybe a point that you were making but that you've lost so somebody you know good listener might say something like can I just take you back to something you were saying or um you know it's interesting the way that you know you use the word you know the um you know can we come back to that or whatever because the, the, the good listener is sensing the true shape of things that are struggling to emerge you can do all of this within your own mind you one side of the mind can listen to the other that's what i was saying a moment ago so the good internal listener also does editing focusing etc for this kind of thing having a pad and paper, as you mentioned, is really helpful, because really what it does is you're able to write something down, and then the mind will lose track of it very, very quickly. I mean, we will forget, you know, um, uh, within seconds of what was said, what was written. But the fact it's there on a piece of paper, it means you can find your own way back to it. I should say that some of the reason why this self-examination is so difficult is not merely uh, a sort of coincidence that we can't um, remember, it's more. there's more intention than that. And that is that we have heavy investments in forgetting and not examining, because a lot of what we find when we do start to examine ourselves and we do start to focus on things is anxiety-inducing material of one kind or another. We might discover that we're not in love with who we should be in love with, or that we are envious of somebody that it's really awkward to be envious of, or that we are newly conscious of inadequacy that would mean that we really have to alter our lives in a certain way. So we're likely to stumble on difficult stuff. And it's for this reason that being on your own is for many, many people um, not just a bit boring, because that makes it sound um, coincidental, it's actually positively frightening. It's horrible. And it's horrible because you're in danger of stumbling on bits of information that will require pain in one way or another. The pain of mourning, the pain of needing to take action, um, the pain of realizing that life isn't the way you want it to be, etc. So there's going to be some cost to doing this. So it isn't enough to say that you can know yourself by being alone, because there are ways of being alone that below the surface are actually ways of not being with yourself. Imagine somebody who Uh, says, you know, I need to spend time alone, and um, cancels all social appointments and sits at home. But actually, what are they doing at home? Maybe, you know, they're checking the news every two minutes, or maybe they are repetitively um, using their mind to to avoid uh, another kind of um, introspection. So, you know, both, both with the status of being alone and the status of being with someone, it's not really that that defines the issue. You can be with somebody, and exploring your mind, if if it's the right sort of creative listener. And you can be so-called on your own, but still doing your absolute hardest not to reckon with yourself.
2: I think that's interesting that you describe different modes of being alone, because... Alonement is a word that describes when being alone is good, so the joy of being alone, but that's not to deny that there are lots of different experiences of being lonely, and sometimes that is just deep despairing loneliness. What would you say is necessary to prevent being alone turning into that experience of loneliness?
3: So if we're looking for how to cure or solve the problem of loneliness, what we have to start with is, Changing what being on your own means. It's not because, in a way, there's there at times all of us can feel quite comfortable being on our own. So, so, but other times it's anguishing. And so, let's look at what goes on when it's anguishing. We sometimes torture ourselves with the thought that everybody else is having a good time now we can really probe into that. I mean, what does that mean? Everybody's having a good time with other people. You know, we know well enough the reality of other people's relationships, other people's friendships to know that, you know, a lot of people are in company and not happy, very compromised in, in some ways. Then there's the thought, you know, I can't find anyone to be with. Once you examine that thought, you realize, well, that's not true. Everyone can find someone to be with. The reason probably why you're alone is because you've got certain standards. And you haven't found anyone who meets the sort of minimum viable threshold of human company. You could find them if you change your standards, but that's in your power, not you haven't been banned and excluded from society. So, in other words, you've chosen to be on your own. And so these are, you know, the other thing is bad company, in bad company, as we all know, we can feel more alone than we do on our own, because bad company reminds us so forcefully of what we would ideally want from another human being. And it's not available. And it can be further from what we're seeking. I mean, it's like, you know, imagine somebody who loves music, Um, for whatever reason, they can't find the kind of music they like, what's better to be listening to you know, bad music or to be listening to silence, and most people would prefer silence. That's not because they don't like music, it's because the right sort of music for them is not available. And I think that's how we have to think of ourselves. So, what I'm really saying is there are very punitive, very harsh stories in our heads about what being on our own means. And by changing the story, we will change what being on our own means. And so long as you've got the right story in your head about what you're doing and why you're doing it, um, you might be completely fine.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
2: When you speak about looking inside yourself and perhaps realising that you might not be happy with your life, socially we consider someone who walks out on their job or ends a relationship, we see that as selfish. Where do you think that that distinction is between self-help and looking after your own needs and what we might term as selfishness?
3: Mm. Well, look, I mean, let's look at this in the context of relationships. So, um, there is a kind of uh, a view that the person who ends a relationship is the selfish one, uh, the bad one, because we're all inclined to believe that love is a good thing, and therefore people together is a is a good thing. And if one ends it, you know, one can encounter from friends and family and the surrounding society, this sort of vision that, that you know, one's ruined a terribly good thing in the name of, of selfishness. Almost anyone who's ended a relationship knows that it's incredibly hard generally, Um, particularly if one's, you know, I'm talking here of a relationship where one party wants to exit and the other one doesn't particularly. That's a very hard situation to be in. And um, generally people don't do this lightly at all. They only do this because it's become really necessary in in some way. I think that uh, it would be very dangerous to equate being together with someone with being somehow selfless and good, and being on one's own or splitting from somebody as, you know, bad and selfish. Um, Ultimately, these are, you know, both modes are are just ways of trying to find a a fit um, where one can be the most, you know, the best version of oneself and and contribute most to one's own fulfilment and the fulfilment of others. So a lot does depend on how it's done. Uh, And I think that many people, when they want to split up, are so... Embarrassed sometimes about their own needs, that they will break the news in the worst possible way, either in a harsh and unnecessarily hostile and aggressive manner, which really is a result of this kind of fear, or in a sort of cowardly, uh, absurdly gentle manner that leaves everybody quite confused as to whether this is the end or a break or or, or nothing at all, uh, etc. So uh, a certain kind of maturity is required for. Um, that journey into a more alone state.
2: So looking after your own needs, is that ultimately the better for everyone?
3: Look, I mean, you know, it does depend what your own needs are. You know, it's hard to generalise, but I would say this, we tend to associate a focus on oneself with selfishness and, and therefore something that's evil and a focus on others as selflessness and therefore a good thing. Anyone who spent any time, well, either closely with themselves or with other people, knows that the attempt to banish all kinds of self-care and self-pleasure and simply lead people to focus on others is a doomed strategy. In order to be a a productive and kind member of society, one one has to spend quite a lot of time nurturing oneself um, in order to do the nurture of other people. Otherwise, you know, we're on a road to exhaustion and bitterness So I think there is a a necessary kind of ruthlessness sometimes that kicks in and that has to kick in. You know, we can't do everything for everyone at every time if we're to be productive members of society. I mean, you get this when people become parents and they have small children. Small children are extremely demanding and it's never occurred to them not to be demanding. And, you know, it's very natural for them. If, as a parent, one constantly wants to give children everything that they want, one will actually go mad because one will never get any sleep, one will be up till three in the morning, one will be eating jelly babies uh, for breakfast, etc. So one has to do this very um, difficult thing, which is to actually disappoint someone that you really love. You have to say, look, I really love you, but actually we're going to bed now. Or I really love you, but I'm going to leave you at the moment because I've got something to do. And that's very very challenging uh, can be very challenging because it seems mean but it's not mean it's it's really about knowing how you can best serve others and serving others will sometimes mean limiting who one can serve and when one can serve them because no one can serve everyone at every point so we may need to be selective and you know there are lives of people who could be described as being quite selfish from one perspective, but from another actually being very selfless. I mean, let's imagine somebody who has a pioneering scientific uh, mission they have a vision of how to eradicate a disease. This will mean that they will have to spend long hours, um, hold up by themselves, shut off from the rest of society, looking pretty selfish, and have to turn a lot of people away um, and be pretty ruthless. But their invention may, you know, save large swathes of humanity. And there are much smaller and less heroic versions of this: uh, the parent who who needs a few hours on their own in order then to be a, a, a useful partner and, um, and and a useful Uh, caregiver for for young children. So there there are kind of trade-offs. And the notion that either we're selfish or we're selfless is is too binary. We know that in order to serve others, we will disappoint some constituencies, but hopefully with a vision of helping others.
2: You've previously spoken about the immense burden that we put on our romantic partners to be our lover and our best friend and our co-parent and basically a one-stop shop. Do you think that learning to meet our own needs internally could help to take that pressure off of our partners and in turn improve our relationships?
3: Undoubtedly. I mean, I think that um, there are various things that can help us to, to have better relationships. One of them is to have a clearer focus on what we're actually really after in another person? What are the things that another person can deliver? Because everybody's going to frustrate us in some way. But knowing that, you know, it it could take years, for example, um, for someone to discover that really what they're interested in is kindness. Now, you know, for a long time, they might think, look, Kindness is one of the things, but I also want somebody who's, you know, successful or very handsome. You know, they may, through quite painful discoveries, learn that actually it's kindness, or it might be something else, or actually that they really want humour or whatever. And and I think that, you know, we've been talking so much about sort of checking in with, with who you really are. Um, it's very hard to find a partner that's right for you unless you have quite a good handle on what makes you very particular. And but once you do have that... It actually, it's hugely liberating for a start. You can get around some of the typical choices because you realize that you know some of the things that everybody else is after, you might not mind so much, you might do, but you might not. You know, you might find that for you, um, someone doesn't have to be very tall, or something you know, everybody's going for the tall people, but actually, you don't mind if somebody's quite small, or you don't mind if. Um, they don't earn very much money, or you don't mind if you know, so long as other things are in place. So it, it enables you to make atypical choices, and that's always quite useful because all of us are slightly atypical. So the more we can sort of refine our, our, our choices, the the better it will be. But I think there was also a question, you know, about you know that that fascinating word compromise. How much compromise should there be in in a good relationship? Look, I think that we'll never find somebody who understands every part of us. But I think that the great prize is to find somebody who is interested in the notion of trying to understand, Uh, even if sometimes I'll have to draw a blank and go, you know, I I can't go there with you, you know, this is not for me. But nevertheless, the the, the sort of the the business of introspection, and also of understanding others is fascinating. Um, You can't really go wrong. And I think that's what ultimately brings closeness when when couples are close it's because they're curious they're taking each other's temperature and even if there are lots and lots of differences the fact there's this constant curiosity and openness to the other person's uh, reality this compensates for any number of diverging tastes or um you know clashes in interior decoration or all the things that we think are the fatal things in relationships it's uh, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's that dreaded word communication that's at the centre of harmony.
2: It's almost that agreement that you'll have a poke around in your partner's brain and they'll have a poke around in yours. And it's that commitment to trying to understand one another.
3: Yes. And also, um, you know, key enemy here is, is what gets called defensiveness. And, you know, we do have a tendency, all of us, to defend ourselves against things that feel threatening. So, you know, the barrier goes up and you go, well, I don't know what you're talking about, or that's not true at all, or that doesn't apply to me. Um, You've got me wrong. You know, these are aggressive, defensive positions on, on questions, and they are really... Unromantic in the true sense, they really do destroy connection. So the more someone's able to go, hmm, I haven't thought about that, but I'm going to, I'm going to listen to that, I guess. And you know, this is catching. If two people are able to do that, two people are able to kind of meet each other's reality with a certain degree of open-mindedness, and are able to, yeah, as I say, remain curious, unfrightened, uh, unaggressive around their differences. It's. It's very hard, but it it truly is uh, the most romantic thing, and we 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 have such bad ideas of what the romantic means. You know, we still associate it with going out for dinner with somebody uh, where there's a candle on the table. You know, but but really, what being romantic means is is being a, a, a kind of good-natured witness to somebody else's reality, uh, and in turn allowing them to be a good-natured witness and a curious witness to to our own reality.
2: Okay and to draw on a bit of a cliche it's often said that you have to love yourself before you can have a healthy relationship. Would you say there's a sense of being kind to yourself and perhaps self-love that's necessary to help you choose that partner who will be that curious good-natured witness?
3: Yes I mean you know the way that we choose partners is um so uh fascinating, but also poignant and and difficult because it's undoubtedly true that for many of us, when we end up with a person who maybe outwardly seems great, um, and we encounter certain sorts of pain and suffering, we're not really primed to notice this. We, we sort of we don't register that actually we've been left a little bit bereft by this person. And um, we may indeed uh, grow more attached to them and more in love with them, the more that actually our needs are not particularly noticed and, and registered by this person. And psychoanalysis tells us a story of the origin of this that for many of us, um, we're not really that familiar. With being loved, because at some level, um, the way that we were treated in childhood was not optimally loving. And so we haven't really got a template for what it means for somebody to really uh, care for us. And it can feel as though we're being cared for when actually we're not. And we don't know how to get out of situations. We, we think it's normal to be in a situation of suffering. So, I think that without wishing to be kind of rigid or dogmatic about this, I think a mature person is able to say, um, you know, I'm not very happy here and it's okay. I trust the fact that I'm not very happy here. So even though from the outside, I'm with somebody who looks terrific and even from the outside, this relationship makes total sense. I've come to the view that um, it's not working for me and I'm going to honour those feelings, even though, they're quite awkward. And it might mean a lot of disruption, but it, it might be a way of looking after oneself. So absolutely, um, one one has to be um, in a position of hoping and expecting good treatment in order to be able to reject those who don't offer that good treatment and, and properly honour those who do. Because somebody who gives you Good treatment. You may reject them because you think, oh, they're too ugly, or they're too strange, or they're too old, or they're too young, or there's, there's some problem with them that we latch onto. Maybe that problem does exist, but if we really are committed to a relationship where there's a lot of of care, we we, we may need to you know make a slightly unusual choice um, and privilege one thing over another.
2: You recently released a cookbook called Thinking and Eating with the School of Life, which is remarkably innovative because it looks at our emotional health in terms of what we cook and what we eat. Where would you say the food we eat comes into this idea of looking after your own needs or what we might term on Instagram as self-care or self-love?
3: I mean, I think, you know, we can pick up the notion of self-care in in lots of areas. But, you know, one one of my favorite chapters in the new cookbook is called Good Enough. And it's really a description of the good enough cook. Now, this is something that most cookbooks never talk about because their ambition is to get us to be perfect cooks. And there's not even an awareness that we might slightly fluff the recipe or there's no there's a rather sort of grim-faced view that we are experts and we're all on the march towards expertise. So we thought we'd bung in a lot of recipes for imperfect meals, uh, from you know the fried egg that that breaks to um, we actually have a, a sort of thing on ordering in, which I think is a first in a cookbook. That we say that part of looking after yourself is acknowledging at points that you are so depleted and so unable to look after others that the best thing to do is to order in, even if you've got some friends coming around, and that it's actually you know this could seem like imagine you've invited seven friends for dinner and um, but you know you're really feeling at a low ebb you've been feeling a bit weepy things have gone wrong and you've got to do this dinner party what are you going to do so one view is to say well actually what do my friends really need from me one of the things that may be very helpful to them is if you're able to show them your more vulnerable sides and say well actually i've not been able to cook for you because i'm feeling a bit upset uh, and Far from being embarrassing, this is actually a gift because it enables them to get in touch with their own vulnerability and to go, oh, if that person's feeling like this, then perhaps I can say that I'm feeling like this. And then, you know, again, it's catching. So all round the table, as we're eating, you know, the, the, the curry from the local curry house. We've got a new insight into into our friend and a new relationship with with ourselves. So all this is part of what um, self care might look like around food. Because you know all these issues. I mean, think of the difference between how people eat when they're with people and how people eat when they're on their own. And this really captures. It's a moment when we can see a lot of what we've been talking about in in this podcast, which is the difference between what you think is normal and what is actually normal. So when you're on your own, you might stand by the fridge and, you know, have a bit of tuna from a jar, grab some hummus, have a carrot, um, you know, uh, go and read the paper, come back, um, make a phone call, uh, drink some milk from the bottle, etc. And this is really quite different from the way that we think. So when we, the way we think other people or normal people should behave. So when we Invite somebody around for dinner. We think, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't do any of that. Um, I've got to lay the table and put a candle and, and, and get a napkin, a starch napkin, and, and serve something called a starter. And then I've got to have the main course, etc. But imagine if we were a bit more honest to what we're like as as diners and therefore as human beings and we realized that actually well we quite like having a bit of a snack and then going for a walk around the block and coming back and then sitting on the floor and um and then actually having some chocolate uh, but then having the leg of a chicken uh, and actually you know that was your dinner party a dinner party that's truer to actually how many of us are
2: i think it's so funny that earlier we were speaking about your talk with helen fielding On Bridget Jones, because I think what is so key to the lofty ambitions of Bridget is that she tries to be this amazing gourmet cook and then ends up making blue soup in that scene for her friends on her birthday. And I also think it's rare that someone would share takeaway pizza as an aspirational form of self care. So I think you're rebranding self care here.
3: Yes. I mean, look, you know, the the poignant thing is we spent so much time. Um, trying to impress people, thinking that this is what is going to buy us friends and what's going to get us the social approval and the connection with others that we crave. And and the paradox is that, you know, in, in large part what actually buys us connections is revelations of vulnerability. This, you know, it, it's impossible to become friends with anyone unless and until you're prepared to take a risk with your dignity and show them um, aspects of yourself that are less than impressive. And, and we routinely miss this, whether that's in cooking or in, in anything else.
2: Finally, I have a listener question. And what I love about this question is it revolves around my idea of conspicuous alonement. So, you know, it's the idea that you can go out in public and dine alone, go to the cinema alone, do any of those things that you would do with another person alone and be seen doing it. The question is... I've recently moved to Geneva for work and I'm struggling to build up the courage to do things alone. While in London, going to the cinema or to restaurants alone seems just about acceptable. Here it seems less of a done thing. So how do I learn to overcome my fear?
3: Well, again, it's changing the story that's in this person's head about what it means to be in the cinema in Geneva on their own. So they're struggling with the notion of Um, that someone is giggling and thinking of them as weird and freakish and and horrible. And they need to change that story. They need to have a more heroic and bracing narrative. That actually, far from being a, a tragic figure, they are a, a pioneer in alonement and uh, in uh, uh, you know pioneering a, a way of a being that's that's noble, that's uh, elevated, um, that's connected up with the finest things and the best human experiences of history. So you're not a marginal figure by having dinner on your own, you're, you know, you're doing something that, you know, Goethe and Freud and Virginia Woolf and the Buddha would have recognised and and seen as very valuable. I mean, really what we're talking about here is making being alone glamorous. And, and that sounds odd because we, we associate the word glamour with um, a sort of sprinkling of fairy dust on some pretty stupid activities. So we say, you know, going skiing is glamorous or, um, you know, wearing a, a certain kind of um, clothing is glamorous. But there are so many things in life that need glamour that currently don't have it. Glamour is badly distributed. And I think we need to make a whole host of things newly glamorous. We need to make kindness glamorous. We need to make introspection glamorous. We need to make you know, self-knowledge glamorous. And we need to make the state of sometimes being alone in the best possible way uh, glamorous. How are we going to do that? Well, throughout history, the tools have been quite similar. You need to show people who've got options doing the thing that unfairly we've come to associate with people who've got no options.
2: Alan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We have covered so many topics today, and you've given so many interesting insights into how to gain self-knowledge and choosing the right partner and my personal favorite why we should all consider ordering a curry for our dinner guests
3: absolutely we've summarized all human experience Um, thank you so much (laughs) thank
2: you it's been delightful thanks thanks for listening to this episode of the allurement podcast and thanks so much to my guest the brilliant inspiring and also incredibly funny Alain de bosson If you loved this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes all the difference to help other people discover the show. Join me next Friday for a brand new episode. Until next time.